Morning. Hey, for the last uh, few weeks, we've been uh, talking about our desire to open up our building on February 7th. Uh, with our construction uh, just about done, uh, we were ready to open. Uh, but we've been talking about we just have a, a massive volunteer shortage uh, due to just a lot of people temporarily stepping back in the fall. Uh, however, I am happy to announce to you that we did get enough volunteers back and we will be opening on February 7th. 2021. That is just a 14 days from now. Uh, praise God. Uh, church, I just want to say you have risen uh, to the occasion. Uh, in the past uh, 14 days, uh, so many of you have told your leaders that you would serve double, which is amazing. That was a huge help. And 81, 81 volunteers are either returning or have signed up to serve for the first time. 81. I'm, I'm serious. We weren't joking about the massive shortage. It was significant, and it required a move of God, and we got one. And so we are going to open up this beautiful building on February 7th, just 14 days from today. So please be in prayer. I don't want you to even just think about it. Just be in prayer, seeking God every day about who you can bring with you on the 7th. Yeah, I just want to tell you, inviting someone to the opening of a brand new church building might be the easiest invite you'll ever have as a Christian. It's just that effective because uh, A, people want to come in and see the inside of the building. They're curious. And plus, this is really interesting. At an opening of a building, people feel as if they're coming in on the ground floor with you to see something. Uh, It's different than if you just would have invited them to our church back in October. They feel like they're coming to join you in it. But at the opening of a building, they feel like they're coming in with you at the same time. So it's a really, really, really effective uh, effective invite. So start praying about who the Lord would have you bring with you if you're coming. You know, we really think that the Lord is going to move mightily as we start sharing the gospel every week here for a period. And we think God's going to move really in two waves over the next couple, over the next year. Uh, Many of you are going to come on the 7th, and so will your friends. Uh, While others of you are going to join us as uh, things get better in the months to come. And many others will join us at that time as well as they visit. We we just think it's going to be an incredible year. We are pumped to open up in 14 days. And thank you so much to so many of you that have responded in the last couple of weeks. All right, Uh, let's jump into our Bible teaching uh, for this week. You know, it's amazing uh, how many people and how much people think about being happy. For many people, you might even say most people, their highest aim in life is to be happy or to make sure that their children are happy. So let me ask you a question. Are you happy? And, and what does it even mean to be happy? And if one, could, I guess this is a lot of questions, if one could be the right type of happy, how do you even go about achieving happiness. The Bible teaches that God does indeed care actually about your happiness. Now, albeit not in a pleasure self-seeking sort of happiness that we often think of when we think of happiness in America, but God wants you actually to have a level of, of happiness, of joy. We might even say contentment. Although the Bible is actually quite clear on how and where we find that happiness. So I want you to open up your Bible with me. Uh, Open up right to the middle of your Bible, uh, to the book of Psalms. Uh, We're actually wrapping up our Psalm series of this morning. And I'm going to take us to the very first Psalm, where it's actually called the Wisdom Psalm, where we get get some wisdom on where we find true happiness. So we're going to read Psalm uh, chapter 1. I'll read through it for you. It's just six verses. It says, Blessed is the one 
who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Okay, so the psalm starts out by saying, a blessed is the one. Now, blessed in this context, in, in Hebrew, I mean, it's like happy. Happy is the one. Or you, you might even be able to translate it, uh, content is the one, or fulfilled is the one who... Now, I, I kind of want to know how that sentence ends, right? Like, well, how, who does what? Like, how do I find happiness, fulfillment? Well, the first piece of, of advice is from verse 1 in this psalm, and it's this. Be, as a follower of God, be hyper-aware of the pull of sin. Did you notice in verse one that there is a progression of sin? There's there's three essential verbs here. And it says, don't walk, don't stand, don't sit. And that's the pull of sin. You know, we start by entertaining it. You're just kind of maybe walking alongside it or someone that you know would just pull you in the wrong direction. You're just kind of walking, you're thinking about it, and then we stand, we're about ready to do it, we're there, we've kind of made up our mind, and then we sit in it. It's going to rob your happiness. It'll rob your joy. The Bible is saying, happy is the one who doesn't even walk near the temptation of sin. Do you, this is an interesting question, do you fear sin and its magnetic pull the way the psalmist recommends? And if you don't, it's actually probably one of the reasons that you may not feel happy. But there is a way that leads to contentment. There's a way that leads to fulfillment, even happiness. We're told that you can find it by being the one who delights in, who meditates on God's word. Uh, To meditate on it is, you know, meditation in, in Eastern religions is to empty your mind. Meditation in Christianity is to fill your mind, is to fill your mind with God's word, to study it, to think on it, to dwell on it. And when you do that, the Bible says it'll be like you're a tree whose roots are reaching deep into the ground. But even more than that, Psalm 1 says you're like a tree that's been planted by the water. A tree who has access to water because it's right next to the river. So it's going to remain healthy. It won't wither. It won't die. Its fruit is going to come naturally and easily. Now, this Psalm Psalm 1 is connected to a theme in scripture that we might call the two paths. Now, the two paths is a theme, a teaching theme in scripture you'll find all over the Bible. You'll find it in uh, books like Deuteronomy, in the law section. Uh, you find it in the Psalms, you find it uh, all over Proverbs. Uh, you even find it uh, in the teachings of Jesus. Uh, look at the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew chapter 7. <clears throat> Jesus himself says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. It's the two paths. It's all over Scripture. The reality is you are on a path right now with your life. And the people that you walk with strongly impact which path that you're on. So does what you listen to. 
uh, what you watch with your eyes, what you read, how you spend your time, the life that we immerse ourselves in has an incredibly large impact on the road that we walk upon. I think many of us are walking upon the wrong road right now because we fail to realize the impact of how we spend our time is actually delayed. This is so key, and I, I think a lot of people don't understand this. So the teaching of the two paths is a delayed impact. So notice Jesus says that the road leads to destruction, or the other road leads to life. It's not that as soon as you step on the one road that you just have instant destruction as soon as you walk upon it. I sort of imagine, if you can imagine in your mind, two roads, and both of them are are sort of going uphill. You've got the road of obeying God and following him, and you've got the road of kind of going your own way, doing your own thing. And both of them are like inclines uphill, and you can't really see what's over the other side. All we can do is trust what the Bible says and study the people who have gone before us. But I think the fact that we can't fully see what's coming by our choices is something that causes a lot of Christians today, especially in our impatient modern society, to choose the wrong path. We don't recognize that each path has its own delayed impact. So let's talk about walking on God's path. Now, you might be tempted to stop your daily devotion, your dedicated walk with God. You might be tempted to walk off of God's path simply because you're not experiencing instant gratification with him. Now remember, when the Bible talks about walking with God, it uses that verb. It says it's, it's your walk. It doesn't say it's your run or your sprint. It's a walk. Uh, Eugene Peterson used to always describe discipleship, the act of following Jesus, as long obedience in the same direction. That's what it means to follow him. It's not quick. I mean, think even of the metaphor that the Bible chooses to use for spiritual growth. It's right here in Psalm 1. What's the metaphor? It's fruit. Okay, well, think about fruit. If you plant an apple seed, when do you get to enjoy eating the fruit of that apple? Next day? Next year? If you plant an apple seed, you're not going to enjoy the fruit of that apple for seven to ten years. It requires long obedience in the same direction, sunlight, watering, dedication. That's the metaphor that the scripture is using because your walk with God is similar to that. If you want spiritual fruit to grow in your life, it's the fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5, you want love, joy, peace, patience. It's going to take time. We're going to realize that the root system of your tree planted by the nourishing water of God takes time to grow. And also, that the roots don't grow automatically. And if you want to know how to grow the roots deep down into God's nourishing stream, even farther, well, it's right there in Psalm 1. How do you, how do you grow it? What does it say? It's verse 2. You meditate on God's word. You let it dwell within you. Let it become a major part of your life. You immerse yourself in it. And I fear that so many of us, we have immersed ourselves in anything but God's word. We're immersing ourselves right now in work or our families, maybe in politics, in the news media, in social media. Putting your roots down in those things is not going to lead to fruit, and it's not going to lead to happiness. So we got to remember that walking on God's path, putting roots down, is going to result in delayed happiness. But I want to teach you about a second delay, 
When you walk on the other path, the path without God, the path where you get to kind of be the queen of your life or the king of your life and decide what's right, that path also has a delay that you need to be aware of. Now, you may experience a rush of happiness at first, but you'll find that that rush evaporates. I think one of the best ways to explain that is this. I uh, mentioned about a month ago, I've been reading uh, the Chronicles of Narnia uh, with my twins. And uh, the most famous of the Chronicles is the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Well, uh, C.S. Lewis, who's the author, eventually wrote a prequel to the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's called The Magician's Nephew. And in the book, uh, Lewis creates this garden scene that's uh, much like uh, the Garden of Eden. And he writes in the book that if the main character, Diggory, if he eats of the fruit, which he was told not to by the Messiah figure, Aslan, he says, if, if, if you eat of the fruit, you will find your heart's desire and also despair. And I actually think that's one of the best definitions of sin I have ever read. That when we sin, our hearts actually get what they desire and despair. I don't think we always understand sin this way. I, in fact, I think one of the failings that many of us have as Christian parents is we just tell our kids that sin is bad. We say, oh, that's bad. Don't do that. It's bad. It'll, it'll mess you up. Don't do it. It's bad. But we fail to tell them, this is why we don't prepare them well enough for being teenagers. So we fail to tell them that they're actually probably going to like it. That the rush of sin is like what C.S. Lewis wrote. It's like getting what your heart desired. So when you punch that bully back in the face, just like you desired, well, for a second, it actually felt good, right? When, when you desired to look where you shouldn't, for a moment, it, that's what you desired. You got it. It felt good. When you desired to speak your mind without thinking, those words actually felt good coming out. But what happens is when you keep walking on the road of sin, eventually you walk long enough over that hill and to your horror, you will find that while you may temporarily have gotten what you desired, you also got despair and emptiness. The thing that you desired, although rich and tasty on the outside, was poisonous on the inside. That is the delay of sin. That's the delay of choosing to walk the other way from God. But walking with God will do no such thing to you. Yes, the fruit takes time to develop, but the delay on his path, it leads to goodness and happiness, not despair and emptiness. So walk with Jesus, trust in Jesus, immerse yourself in his words. And you'll find that when you do that, that your roots that go down into his nourishing stream will actually be tremendously strong. Uh, This is something I think that the modern, secular American society society is entirely in need of. I want you to think about this. From the moment that you were born, if you grew up in this country, most of us have been trained to try and manufacture or create circumstances in our life so that we can be happy. Why were you told to go to school? Well, so you could get a job, so you could be happy. We're told to seek after money so we can be happy. We're told to find a soulmate so we can be happy. We're told to be healthy so we can be happy. And many of you, you think thoughts like this every day. You think, if my circumstances change, then I will be happy. Some of you have been thinking right now, you're like, as soon as I move, as soon as I get out of that apartment or out of this house, I will be 
happy. As soon as this virus is over, circumstances have changed. I will be happy. Once I finish school, I will be happy. See, in our culture, you've been taught this till you're blue in the face. Some of you don't even recognize it because it's so prevalent in our culture. We've been taught that our job in life is to try and create circumstances, manufacture them, so that when we get the right circumstances, we will be happy. But rarely does anyone ever teach you how to be happy when your circumstances and your dreams don't work out. It's like, what part of life prepared you to be happy when you get diagnosed with chronic pain for the rest of your life? Who prepared you for that? And what part of life prepared you to be happy and still find contentment and fulfillment when your spouse dies at 35 years old? Like, What part of the American dream ever taught us to be happy when the American dream turns into a nightmare of unemployment? Like, What part of secular society has prepared people who've been taught their whole life to work towards this bliss of retirement what part of life taught you to be happy when you get to the age of retirement, but you don't have any money to retire? Right? There's an enormous reason why the depression rate is skyrocketing in America. It's, it's because we were taught that we could somehow control our life. Like it was some sort of clay and you could just mold it in and get the right circumstances and make yourself happy. And if you weren't getting the right circumstances, you must not have been trying hard enough and just changing. And then you can find a way to be happy. I'm telling you right now, you were lied to. You just were. 99% of you are never going to find the right circumstances to make yourself happy. Your health is going to fail. A relationship that you thought was going to work is going to fail your career doesn't go where you thought it would be. And for many of this has already happened. But we still, we keep telling ourselves, okay, but yeah, but once I get the next job, or once I find the next person, then, then everything will kind of be right in my circumstantial blocks and I will be happy. Let me ask you a really, really foundationally important question. If your life circumstances never changed, from this moment on in your life, for the rest of your life, could you be happy? Uh, for those of you that are single, if you never got married, could you be happy? Uh, for those of you who think a lot about your career and work, if your career never progressed, and you had the same job for the rest of your life, could you be happy? For those of you that are dealing with health issues, what if it never got fixed? What if this, how you feel right now, is how you felt for the rest of your life? If your circumstances never improved from here on out, could you be happy? You know, the odds are you're never going to be able to create the right circumstances. We've just so fallen so deeply for the lie that we keep telling ourselves, next year we will. And we never do. And we're still not happy because we're just waiting for the circumstances to make us happy. You don't need the circumstances. What you need is for your life to be rooted in something deeper than your circumstances. You need your life to be planted in God. 
right? John 15, Jesus teaches, you need your life to abide in the vine of Jesus. You need to live in the truth that if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are one of his disciples, that no matter what comes in your life, you are his. You are his beloved child whom he walks with, he cherishes so much so that he gave his life for you. His word tells us right here in verse three that if you do that, if you abide with him and you walk with him, eventually you will yield fruit. And not only that, because of your roots are in him, not in your circumstances, they're in him. That when the wind blows, that when life gets hard, that when the cold weather comes, that your leaf will not wither. Everybody else will, but you will not because your roots go deeper than your circumstances. That is the brilliant teaching of scripture. And that is who your God is. But heed the warning. If you don't walk with God and you try and find life in the ways of the world, the Bible says you are not like a strong tree with deep roots by the stream. It says you are like chaff, verse 4. Chaff, if you don't know what chaff is, it's like that uh, light shell that's around the kernel of the grain. It's going to be stripped away before you can ground the grain into flour. Uh, Chaff was uh, light enough that uh, literally it could be separated from the grain. They could just take a scoopful of grain and throw it into the air and the wind would blow away the chaff. That's how light it is. And that's what the psalm is saying. That when you decide that you're going to walk and be the king of your own life, the queen of your own life, make your own decisions, your life is like chaff compared to the strong tree. That is a stark contrast. And you can have everything go right for you circumstantially. You can get all the money you want. You can get all the power you want. Everybody liking you. But your life will be like chaff. It won't be enough. Even if you got all the circumstances right. and Say you're part of that 99.99% and everything goes right for you. What you'll find, even at the top, is that you weren't created to find life in created things, but in the creator. And it won't be enough. And you'll find even that road leads to destruction. And you'll find that it won't be enough because even Jesus himself says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Yet for eternity, lose his soul. Like, honestly, what will it profit you if you get everything here on earth? Let's say your career just goes gangbusters, everything works out. Let's put your family is just so wonderful. Everything works out, but you never give your life to Christ. You never turn your life over to Christ. And then after your death, you spend year after year, millennia after millennia in hell. Will it have been worth it? Living apart from God on earth? Of course not. This is the most tragic thing in the world. And that's why the Bible is using the stark contracts of not walking with him. Even if you get everything you think you want, it's in the scope of eternity, it's like chaff. Walking apart from God is like chaff. My friend, trust in God's ways. Remember his fruit takes time to grow. It's not instant like the hollow desires of sin, but it is good, and his goodness lasts forever. Put your roots down deep in him. Let me pray. Lord, help us uh, clearly see the two paths that are in front of us. And Lord, that your path, although the delay of goodness is often more delayed than we think or what we want, God, that it's good. It is so good. 
Change our hearts to seek it, God. Give us eyes to see the hollowness, the emptiness of walking away from you, even though it tastes good at first, God. We get what we desire, but we'll get despair. God, may we choose you and choose life. In your name we pray. Amen.